0: Let's open our Bibles now to 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6 verses 11 through 21, page 1179 of your pew Bibles. The conclusion of Paul's first letter to this young pastor, Timothy, serving a church in the very cosmopolitan city of Ephesus, 1 Timothy 6 verses 11 through 21. And um, this Passage starts with with the word but, but as for you. And so it would be helpful for you to know what Paul is contrasting this passage to. And so just to refresh your memories of what we heard last week, uh, Paul has just warned Timothy about some sins that could ruin his ministry and could ruin the life of this church in Ephesus. Paul's just warned Timothy about false teaching that we just prayed about, that false teaching can destroy a church. He's just warned Timothy that the love of money introduces many types of evil into not just individual lives, but the love of money can ruin a church. And so then Paul follows those warnings with these instructions, which we read now starting at verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's start at the center of this passage where we find a description of God. A description of God. Paul loves to give these, these stirring descriptions of who God is. As he teaches and gives Timothy commands, he roots it all in who God is. So that we would know that God is worthy of our obedience and of our service. So we find one of these great descriptions of God in verses 15 through 16. And that's the foundation of my message this morning. Everything, the rest of the commands that God gives, flows out of what Paul teaches in these two verses that the Lord is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So here is another example where where a biblical author wants us to have a high view of God. That's a phrase you hear from me a lot, and I recognize that. Having a high view of God is the life of the Christian. A high view of God, a high view of his glory, a high view of his grace to us. We have here a great example of a biblical author striving to call us, To have this high view of who God is. How can we think more highly of God? This passage says He is the blessed and only sovereign. That means that He has the highest place in creation and He is even above creation. So that He is above every person, He's above everything in creation, above storms and floods above the whole earth above the solar system above our galaxy above even the universe and all of its complexity and all of its physical glory god is above it moving on paul says he's the king of kings and the lord of lords and i love how the theologian herman bobbing summarized this he says the kingdom of god is a kingdom and it has a king and that is the lord The Christian prays, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We appeal to the king who is above the earth, who is the king of kings and lord of lords. The king of God is a kingdom. It is not a democracy. And God is in charge. He's sovereign. And so what is this king like? We find continuing in the description, he alone has immortality. One commentator put this attribute of God very well, saying, that we believe that we have so, a sort of, our soul will live on after this life. And our immortality, whether that's in heaven with God or in hell, depends on the immortality of God. So, this commentator wrote that God is the only thing in the universe that is truly eternal that he always has been, is, and always will be. That's even there in his name that he gives to Moses in the Old Testament. He is who he is. He has immortality. And so the immortality of the human soul depends on the immortality of God. So if you think, for, if you think forward to living in heaven with God and you're looking forward to that, to inhabiting the new creation, living with God forever in perfection, at the return of Christ. You're looking forward to an eternal life that depends on the immortality of God to sustain you forever. Continuing, Paul says, he dwells in unapproachable light. So his glory and his power are so brilliant that we cannot approach him, that we cannot earn our way into the presence of God. Not only are we incapable of approaching him, Paul goes even a step further saying, no one can ever even see him nor has seen him. But because of the work of Christ, we will be with the Lord. We will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, made holy through Christ so that we can approach him, so that we can see him in heaven, so that we can be with him even forever. But without Jesus, Paul is saying here, it would be absolutely impossible To him belong honor and eternal dominion. So it is good for us to contemplate um, the humanity and the humility of Jesus. It's good for us to remember that Jesus was a real person who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. It's good for us to think of the Spirit being present in our lives, being a guide and being a comforter to us in our troubles. But we also need to balance that with this high view of God who has all honor and eternal dominion. So that's one of the the beautiful doctrines of the Christian faith is keeping in balance the presence of God in our lives, how he is with us and even the humility of Christ taking on the form of a servant, going to die on a cross in, in utter humiliation. And so we have that view of God that he has been humbled at the cross, but also a view of God that he is absolutely glorious, that he is dwells in unapproachable light that to him belong honor and eternal dominion. So thinking of all of these attributes, consider that he gave his life for us, for our salvation. Looking at that description of God and then combining that with knowledge of Christ's work at the cross will prompt in you a love for God and a desire to serve him. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, alone has immortality, dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see to him belong honor and eternal dominion and he died on the cross for us. Amazing. And it's true. So there's a reason for this stirring description of God that Paul gives to Timothy as he closes his letter to this young pastor. And the reason is that these, this... These truths, this doctrine is the motivation for Timothy serving God in that church in Ephesus. If Timothy's going to be a good pastor, if the members of that congregation in Ephesus are going to be good followers of Jesus, they need this high view of God. They need to remember who God truly is. After all, what motivates a pastor or what motivates any person to do what is good? What motivates us to go to church? What motivates us to try to follow the Ten Commandments? What would motivate us to share the gospel with a neighbor? And discovering our motivations is is something that we should work on at times. Is it so that a congregation in Ephesus or a congregation here in Ripon won't fail? Is that the motivation at the core of why we come to church or why we do ministry, of why I preach or why we have a worship service? Thinking about a sports team that towards the end of the game has the lead. And we've all maybe seen those, those games before where at the end of the game, the team that's just playing not to lose is the team that ends up losing. <laughs> they've, they've given up striving forward. They're just, just sitting back and playing defense. They're just trying not to lose the game instead of putting all of their effort into the original game plan, which was to go and win the game actively. Unfortunately, congregations can start to function in that way as well at times where we sort of play not to lose, to to keep the members happy or maybe to attract some new people so that this organization known as Ammon Valley CRC won't fail. Is that the motivation for why we gather for worship, why we serve in the church? Do we need to make good decisions in council meetings or have an encouraging worship service or host interesting ministries mainly just so that we won't lose? Or is the motivation thinking about your own life how, for how you use your money in a, a similar kind of motivation? That you don't want to be a failure. You don't want to be poor. Or you want to, to have a, maybe an attractive lifestyle. Is that the motivation for how you think of using money or is it to ultimately honor the Lord? Or thinking about our work ethic, which we thought about last week as well. Do you work hard just so that you won't get fired? Kind of working hard almost as just playing defense, keeping the boss happy, doing just enough to get by. Or do you work to honor the Lord? Do you love your kids or your grandchildren and, and invest in their life because you want them to be a success and you want to feel like a success too because of their achievements and you can kind of live vicariously through them? Is that the ultimate reason for why we care for children in the next generation? Or is it to bring glory to God ultimately? The reason for Timothy's ministry The reason for the congregation's existence in Ephesus, the reason for the existence for this congregation in Ripon is the honor and glory of the Lord. That's why Paul roots his instructions to Timothy, his final commands in this high view of God, that he's saying here, this is all for God's sake, it's all for the name of Jesus. That great description of God in the middle of our passage gives the motivation for the other commands that follow after, the commands that Paul gives to Timothy. So we can look at three of them this morning. We honor the Lord. We give Him glory. We worship Him when we fight the good fight. So again, we need to keep that, that high view of God in mind if we're going to accurately understand this phrase that a lot of people probably know already from this letter. Paul commanded Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight. So some people get excited when they hear about this instruction. They would say, All right, I like to fight. I like to have debates and arguments and um, to get in the middle of of a disagreement. And to them, it's very easy to imagine a good fight. But that's not the encouragement here that Paul is giving to Timothy. Paul is not here giving permission to be argumentative or critical of everything. He's not encouraging Timothy towards legalism. But Paul told Timothy what the good fight of faith is in just the previous verse, in verse 11. If you still have your Bibles open, keep those Bibles open. Look at verse 11. What is the good fight of faith? To pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. To pursue Christian virtue, to be like Christ. You will have to fight to be righteous in this world. You will have to fight to be a morally pure follower of Jesus. That's the good fight of faith. You will have to fight for godliness in a godless society. A society that is so often opposed to the way of God, to the word of God, to the work of Christ. You will have to fight for godliness. You'll have to fight for your faith. Fighting against doubt fighting against cynicism in our culture. You'll have to fight to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, fighting against temptation to love something else more than God, fighting against temptation to love yourself more than anything or any person. You'll have to fight in this world to be steadfast, to persevere in your devotion to Jesus. It takes effort. It takes fighting. It takes striving towards that goal. It doesn't just happen. But the Christian is called here to fight for it. You'll even have to fight to remain gentle. It sounds a little bit strange to put it in those terms. But you're going to be tempted sometimes to think that intense emotions and revealing your frustration and being an angry person, that's the better way to get things done. But to fight the good fight of faith is to strive towards gentleness. Gentleness in our interactions with people and how we communicate uh, truth to one another. Now you all know that I love the Pilgrim's Progress. And one of the reasons that I love it so much is it is, to me, a very honest portrayal that every Christian is fighting constantly to move forward in your life. That there, are, there is one obstacle after another. If maybe, I would hope many of you are reading the Pilgrim's Progress after we've distributed so many of those books, whether children reading the children's version or adults reading the version that we distributed for you. When you read it for a little while, you're seeing, man, it's just one thing after another for this guy, for this Christian who's on his way to, to see the king to the holy city. And I appreciate the Pilgrim's Progress because it's a recognition that the Christian life is not a cakewalk. It's not an easy journey, just onward and upward on the, the, the smooth path where there's no enemies and no distractions. The Pilgrim's Progress teaches very much the opposite. There will be obstacles, difficulty, enemies along the way. Many people become Christians thinking... That to become a Christian is to make life easier, to be more carefree. And such people are surprised when they have to fight against something. When they have to fight for their faith, fight for godliness, fight to be gentle, (laughs) fight for the virtues of Christ and to put on Christ instead of um, to, to just be our natural sinful self. People think that because Jesus forgave our sins that they won't be tempted anymore. But it isn't just the opposite true? People think that to believe in God's promise of peace for us must mean that nothing will ever threaten that peace that we have in Christ. But in the pilgrim's progress it's one fight after another. For a Christian on his way to see the king, he battles against self which is a representation of his selfishness. Don't we all fight against selfishness every day? Paul is saying to Timothy here, keep fighting it. Fight the good fight of faith. Fight against your selfishness. Be self-giving. Be humble. Serve others. Christian along his path towards the king leads through Vanity Fair, where there are all of these distractions by worldly things. And he has to fight his way spiritually through that city that, it, that could be so distracting that it's tempting even for him to stay in and just get along with those worldly people who have worldly values. They have to fight their way through. And there's even a sad situation where one of his, his friends is killed in that city because he refuses to go that way. Christian has to fight through the, the castle of, uh, of doubt and the giant despair. Those enemies are always stronger than him. That's one of the themes of the Pilgrim's Progress as well. All of those enemies are far stronger than Christian is. But the king delivers him again and again. And the king honors Christians fighting against those things. Keeping in view this, how great God is, keeping a high view of God, you also are called to fight the good fight of faith. In the strength of Christ, wearing the armor of God, fight against sin. In the strength of Christ, wearing the armor of God, you're called to fight. To pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. To take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Did you notice how active those words are? Fight, pursue, take hold of eternal life. The Christian life, if, it's, if you're going to be growing in Christ, you must be active, moving forward, taking hold, pursuing, fighting the good fight. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So it brings honor to God when we actively fight the good fight of faith. Second, we honor the Lord, we worship Him when we keep the good confession. That's what Paul wrote in verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you have been called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so we have, first, a good fight, and second, a good confession. You know, becoming a member of a church in the first century or becoming a pastor in that church was actually very similar to how we welcome members and how we ordain ministers in the Christian Reformed Church here in this congregation. Part of the process for becoming a member, for becoming a pastor also in a church like ours is a public profession of faith, public prayer for someone who is entering into uh, the fold of the church. And that includes publicly saying what we believe about Jesus, about the Word of God, and about the teaching of the church. So Paul called that statement that Timothy made at his public profession of faith in becoming a minister the good confession. When Paul wrote this to Timothy, he was aware that things can start well and then trail off into different directions, that there can be temptation to move away from the truth, to move away from the good confession that Timothy had in beginning his ministry. And that's exactly what we find to be a problem so often in, in not just the ministry of pastors in churches, but even in the life of a member of so many churches, that, that what starts so good with a confession that is pure and intentions that could be very good can get pulled away by temptation, by laziness, by distraction, away from the good confession and into a life that is built on something else. Why, why are many Christians struggling in their faith? It's often because they have forgotten to keep the good confession. There are many reasons why people could be struggling But one is that they haven't kept the good confession that they gave among many witnesses at the entrance of uh, their membership into the church. Connecting this with the previous point, you will have to fight to keep this good confession. You will have to fight to keep it. Think of the illustration of a marriage. Why do marriages fail? Because the promises that are made on the wedding day are not kept. Perhaps by both, perhaps by one. Why do so many marriages fail? Because people neglect the promises, the confession, the profession that they make on their wedding day. Why do many people get fired from their jobs? It's often because someone fails to do the tasks that they were originally hired to complete. And similarly, why do so many Christians struggle and languish in their faith? It's because what could have started well, they have been distracted away from by worldliness, by other things, and perhaps even by directly by sin. But we can be thankful that we have an example of, of so many people around us here at Ammon Valley who are keeping the good confession, who profess their faith decades ago, perhaps, and are living a life of humble service to Christ. This is happening in Ripon. This is happening in the Christian Reformed Church. It's happening throughout the world. And we can give praise to God, believing that he who began a good work in us is going to be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You know, it can be easy to go looking for those who have strayed away from this path and gotten into all kinds of spiritual trouble. It's easy to find stories of believers, especially stories of pastors who have not kept the good confession but have have wandered off into um, maybe a hyper-political way of preaching or a liberal theology which rejects the miracles of the Bible and so forth. It can be easy to find those bad examples, but I would encourage you to look for the good examples of those who are keeping the good confession. The Internet can be a great tool for this. It certainly could show us examples of those who have strayed away and what Paul says, who have swerved from the faith. It can be easy to find that kind of stuff on the internet or even in the news. But I would hope that you would also be, uh, be searching for stories of people who are keeping the faith, fighting the good fight, keeping the good confession. Churches and ministries that are in line with the teaching of God's Word and in line with the will of Christ. One thing that we should note in Paul's instruction here is that by commanding Timothy to keep the good confession, he's implying that there is a bad confession as well. So there is a right faith to keep, a good confession, and that implies also that there is an imitation version That's so often what Paul is teaching against. To to the Galatian churches, he particularly says, you're believing in a gospel that's actually no gospel at all. And so he's teaching Timothy here, hold on to the good confession, and the good confession is always in line with the word of God. Always in line with what the scriptures teach. And then Paul goes on right after that to point to Jesus. And so the good confession keeps Jesus at the center the Good Confession keeps the cross at the center of our worship, the center of our ministries, the center of our everyday lives, keeps Jesus at the center of our prayers, of our good works, and of our goals. It honors God when we keep the good confession. Because in in the simple act of, of weekly worship, of daily prayer, of opening the Bibles, Our our Bibles at home, uh, the, the simple act of believing, the plain teaching of Scripture, we bring glory to God because we're saying to God as we do all those things, that's enough for me. So we keep the good confession. And third and finally, we honor the Lord when we build on a good foundation. So fighting a good fight, keeping a good confession, building on a good foundation. That's from verses 18 and 19 where Paul wrote to the wealthy people of this church in Ephesus, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So there we see that to be rich in good works, to be rich in generosity, to be ready to share, is to bring glory to God and to build your life on a good foundation. So it's interesting that among Paul's final instructions to Timothy, he once again turns to this issue of how money is used by people in the church. Again, Paul recognizes how money is handled sets the trajectory in some ways for the health of a congregation. If the church is generous, if the church loves to be merciful, loves to be supportive of people, If the church loves to use money to bring glory to God, it reveals that the foundation of that church isn't money itself, but the foundation of the church is Jesus and living the way that he did. Because isn't that the life of Jesus? To be generous, to be merciful, to be supportive, to give of ourselves. This is uh, the way of Christ. This is building on the foundation of his life. But if wealthy people in a church and I've seen this happen thankfully not in our church but in other churches if wealthy people use their money as a tool kind of a a power play you might say at times sometimes withholding money to get what they want or spending money that's just a small small proportion to what the lord has given to them that those people are showing that that their treasure is ultimately in this world and the treasure is not Christ and the kingdom of God. And that pervades through a church so powerfully that it forms one of Paul's final warnings to Timothy. So no matter how much money you have, keep in mind this description of honoring God with your money. If you are using your money in a way that honors the Lord, You're taking hold of that which is truly life. You're storing up for yourself for the future, not a treasure that will ultimately fade away, but storing up for yourself um, an enjoyment of the kingdom of God. Now, some of you might not be wealthy with money, but you may be wealthy in time. And so to think of your time in the same way that Paul tells us to use our money. You're wealthy in time and so to store up for yourself treasures in heaven is to use your time to bless other people instead of just selfishly spending all your time on yourself. Some of you are wealthy in in children, you have children and grandchildren and family members maybe who live here locally, and you can invest in their lives. Maybe you don't have a lot of money, and maybe you don't even have a lot of time, but you have all of this influence and you're wealthy in that sense. Are you investing in those things in the lives of your children for your own namesake or for the honor and glory of God? Paul says, take hold of that which is truly life. Use your money, your time, whatever God has given to you in a way that will bring him glory. And then Paul wrote, finally, about another threat to that foundation in verse 20. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Now it's it's trivia time. Do you remember the heresy that was threatening this church? We talked about it several weeks ago. It was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, gnosis, or knowledge, is at really the middle of that heresy Gnosticism was the search for a secret personal knowledge that surpassed anything that you could learn from a book or even from the church. The heresy went on to become extremely popular. Um, Actually, after the first century, it was extremely popular in the second century. And so, thanks be to God that he's already warning the people in Ephesus about this false teaching that's about to become very popular in their neighborhood, in their and in the Roman Empire. So the heresy goes on to become popular throughout the world in the centuries following the Apostle Paul's warning. And so the appeal for those teachings, and many ideas that, that are very similar today, is that it's the newer knowledge, it's something different, it's novelty that you need to be seeking instead of that traditional message about sin and salvation and serving God. There's something secret and new for you to access. And so the the Gnostic person is always promising something more, something that is just out of reach, that you could strive towards, and and maybe if you work really hard at, at gaining this kind of knowledge, you'll get it someday. But the Apostle Paul says, Avoid it. Avoid contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the good confession, the plain and simple gospel, faith in Jesus. The Christian who has a high view of God will never tire from hearing the gospel. The Christian who has a high view of God will never get tired of hearing that that simple message, we are sinners, Christ has come to deliver us, we're called to serve him. A simple, simple message we hear again and again. Paul says, Be content with that. Build on that foundation. Don't swerve off of that into what is falsely called knowledge because those who have have swerved away from the faith itself. So as we conclude this book of 1 Timothy, I am thankful for a few reasons. That's how I want to finish preaching through this book. To tell you why I'm thankful for what God has shown here and why I'm thankful for this church. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's how 1 Timothy begins. Are we thankful for that? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I am the worst. And he's shown unlimited patience with me. He's shown favor and grace and love and mercy towards me. We recognize that as we begin reading the, the, the book of 1 Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that is woven all the way through this great book of the Bible We can be thankful as well that we are a part of a church here at Ammon Valley that is not a perfect church. So we need to keep reading books like this. We need to keep reading the scriptures so that we would be more and more refined. We're not a perfect church, but according to this book of the Bible, I do believe that we are a healthy church, and we can thank God for that. That having measured our congregation Hopefully, as you have been measuring my preaching according to what this book of the Bible says, as we measure our ministries, as we measure our lives according to what God has revealed here, we, I believe, can say, generally, this is a healthy place to be a Christian. And it's not because of our effort or because of my intellect or wisdom. It's not because of any perfect thing that somebody has done or the decision the council has made. It's by the grace of God. And so as we read a letter like 1 Timothy and we measure our church according to it, we can say we're not perfect, but this is a healthy place to be a believer in Jesus. I'm so thankful as I read this book of the Bible that this is a church where people want to hear the word of God. That's a theme in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, that there's going to be a time when people don't want to hear the word of God anymore, but they want to hear their political view from the pulpit. Or some other thing that is falsely called knowledge from the pulpit. Or just practical little lessons for how you can get through your week instead of the gospel itself. But this is a church where people want to hear the word of God. And I'm so thankful for that as, I, as I've been reading through this book of 1 Timothy. I'm so thankful that so many of you are fighting the good fight of faith. In small ways, every day trusting Jesus. I'm thankful that this church is full of people who keep the good confession that they made in the presence of many people. Now again, we don't do this perfectly. None of us does. But this is a community where we want to keep our profession of faith oath that we made in the presence of God and one another. And I'm thankful that we are built on the foundation of Christ, the good foundation of and all of this is for the glory of God. And so we can say God is being glorified in this congregation, at this church. To him belongs honor and eternal dominion. At Ammon Valley, to him belongs honor and eternal dominion in our lives. To him belong honor and eternal dominion in the earth. Amen? Amen.